Cool, guys. So now we're gonna we're just gonna pray quickly, uh, but we're gonna look into now the distinctions between men and women, um, and I just want you all to really keep this in mind because this is key to actually understanding that, um, and also just um, a real putting aside of anything that being renewed in the attitude of your minds, things like that. Do not conform to the pattern of the pattern of this world. But be renewed. So um, I just want to encourage you to examine your heart. I'm going to pray now. But things that might rise up in you that you like, don't really feel um, like that's right or whatever, um, I want to encourage you to just submit that before God and His intended purposes and that none of it is meant for anything but freedom and fullness of life. Yeah. Cool. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Um, thank you for all you've made us to be in your image. Father, what an honor um, that you would want to be in relationship with us um, and that we are made in your likeness, Lord. I just want to pray for all of us in this room tonight, Lord. Why don't you just come and fill us with your spirit right in this moment, Lord. Why don't you just affirm who you've made us to be as individuals, as human beings. Lord, won't you restore, won't you encourage, won't you uplift, and we ask that absolutely nothing will be hurtful or squashing or pressurizing, Lord, but that that will truly release us into the freedom that your word is intended for. We ask for all this in your mighty name. Amen. Thanks, Sarah. (laughs) Appreciate it. So, I'm going to be talking on Biblical womanhood. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, just to start off, I'm going to try like weave some thoughts together. Hopefully, it's helpful. If it's not, forget them. <laughs> but I think like in the Bible, there's this, at least in the New Testament and Ephesians, like we've been reading through, there's this real pattern of unity, right, amongst us as believers or and other things as well, but not uniformity. Unity, but not uniformity in the Bible. So we see it in the church, right? Like Paul had preached, we're being built into this living temple and we're all rocks, but we're like different sized rocks and we're all in different places. But we all fall under Christ. We're unified in Him, but we play different roles. And it can also be seen in the Trinity, I think, with God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are all equally God, and they all share fully in the characteristics of God, but they've each played a different role in our salvation. So there's like this this unity there, but there is difference. And in the same way man and woman were created, we are essentially very similar. We have all of this in common, or we can do, we not necessarily do for some of the where are the personalities and stuff, but the rest of it we all share in fully. But there are distinctions, and I think the obvious one that comes to mind is anatomically there's differences, right? (laughs) (laughs) And I think like it's it's easy just to ignore that. But God doesn't do things just for the sake of doing them. He does them with a specific thing in, in mind and purpose. So, so to ignore the differences between men and women would be to like, 
deny living the way we were designed to. So there's definitely something worth addressing and seeing here, right? And whenever men and women are mentioned together in the same passage in the Bible, there's a distinction made between function. And these are fundamental, right? And we can't ignore them. And I think to start off, I'm just going to tell two stories from my teenage years. (laughs) Like, just unhelpful things for men, (laughs) right? And the first one I'm going to tell was that we're at youth, and as usually when a sermon was preached, the youth would get shipped out to go learn something more suited to them, and, and we were waiting for the talk to start, and there were two older guys with me who went to St. John's High School. <laughs> and that's where the real macho men went. And I was at Hellenic where, yeah, <laughs> there were questions, and these two guys said, like, Matt, we both have girlfriends, and we're both at St. John's. And you go to Hellenic, and you don't have a girlfriend. I think St. John's is where the real men go to school. And I was like, yo, that's hard. <laughs> and it, it, it was something that just struck me. Like, in that moment, I was like, wow, am I a man? And I think being a pastor's kid, I had the perfect response. And I was like, well, Jesus was single. And he was a man. <laughs> But there's, there's something like out there in culture that's yeah. so unhelpful and that sees women as a means to bettering self, right? And it's the selfish idea that I'm only going to date someone if it, if it lifts my personal image or if I get something out of it. And then another story, it'll take a bit of understanding, but I was in a rugby match and I, I might not look like it, but I loved rugby <laughs> at school and I got tackled and hurt my knee. But when you play rugby and you get injured, you, you don't roll around like a soccer player. <laughs> so I got up and like ran to the defensive line and I was sort of limping. And I, I shouted to the coach, I'm injured, like I need to come off. And he tried to gesture something, I didn't really understand it, and he went on for a bit and eventually he shouted, lie down, or the medics won't know that you're injured, Matt. <laughs> so I like awkwardly lay on the floor. They came to me and they like took me off. And I think that's another symptom that we've taken on as men from the culture. Like we don't know how to express hurt or we don't take responsibility when we're wrong. We don't know what it means to be vulnerable and to admit that we need help. And I think both of those stories we can see have no place in Christian manhood. And by nature of being a Christian, you know what it is to be vulnerable and to take responsibility for your actions and to admit that we've sinned and we need Jesus, we need help, so that (laughs) not having feelings and not being vulnerable has no place in being a Christian man. And we're also called to, yeah, to not serve our needs. (laughs) And there's no place for selfishness and and buoying up our ego. But anyway, those are my stories aside. I just thought they'd be, be helpful. And to start off with biblical manhood again we're going to go back to the start (laughs) and to the second creation account so it's in Genesis chapter 2 verse 15 and it's really short and quick then the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden (laughs) to tend and keep it and that's pretty short and quick and the tend and keep what she used here is very similar to God and protect and that same pair of words are used in other texts to talk of the priests and the tabernacle, which is interesting. So there's something similar 
between what the priest did in the tabernacle and what Adam was commissioned to do in the garden with guarding and protecting. And I think it extends beyond gardening or your place of work, right? There's something intrinsic to a man. There's a call on a man to guard and protect. And I think for the most part, it's to guard and protect women and children. And there's something in the way we are designed in our external nature that we are called to protect. And I think it's clear to see in culture how it's played out. Who gets sent to war? Who forms most of the police force, right? Men are expendable and they get sent out to fight battles on the battlefield to guard and protect. And there's something in us that God has put there, a call on our life to guard and protect. And to ignore that is to, to miss part of what he wants us to live like. And it's, it's hard to think how it applies to our everyday life because we can see it in marriage, right? <laughs> if there's a noise in the night, who gets out of bed? <laughs> The husband, right? And he goes outside with the cricket bat <laughs> and looks for the thief in the bottom of the corner. But not all of us are married and some of us might not end up being married, but we're still called to guard and protect. So I think it looks like in our community, looking for people who are vulnerable, who maybe need guarding and protecting. I think for us boys at uni, all these lovely ladies have been sent here by their fathers and they're probably a bit scared about what's going to happen, right? <laughs> and they... They're scared about their daughters walking home alone at night. And I think there's, there's one practical example of what it looks like to, to be a man. If you've had friends come over, walk them back to their res at night, guard and protect them. And it's, yeah, it's not only a call to protect and guard those we know and love, but those who are vulnerable, vulnerable and in need. That can look like women in our church who don't have husbands anymore or have never had a husband or going to help out at the Serve Cities things. And there's all these vulnerable children who are so open to the attacks of the world and they really do need protection and guarding. And it, yeah, it doesn't only talk about physical needs. I think we can guard and protect so much more than just the physical. And yeah, it should be in our nature. And, it, and it's pretty clear that it is. Whenever a man does something heroic, it really is celebrated in the news, right? <laughs> if someone stands in the way of a bullet and saves a child, that's going to be blown over CNN, BBC and all of that. And I think it's because it's something intrinsic to us. Mm-hmm. And it's not to say that women can't guard and protect as well, right? Yeah. There's some, I mean, I watched a bit of the Olympics, <coughs> a bit of the judo, and some of those women are pretty hectic. <laughs> they, they could definitely guard and protect. But we're talking general and absolute truths here. <laughs> and there's something commission here that applies to men and yeah it's something that I've noticed in my life I think from a young age my mom always used to do the gate when we got home at night but eventually I was like no that's not on this is a man's job (laughs) and it it wasn't out of like a a selfish like look what I can do but it was out of a care for my mom and a concern there's something so precious about women and that the way they bear life right it's something that needs to be protected there's something so beautiful in men doing this well. And then the next point, also in Genesis, is in Genesis 2, verse 23. And this, might, this one might seem a bit left field <laughs> and weird, but I think it's, it's got a beautiful gospel application. So we love this. <laughs> and, it's, and Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And it's written in like a different style to the rest of it. And it's in quotation marks. And what I found out is that this is the first ever song in the Bible. 
So it's Adam like serenading Eve. <laughs> and it's this special moment as he sings to her. And I think it's something that, yeah, we see that, that men usually initiate the relationships. Men are called to be the, the lover and women the beloved. This is seen in usually men proposed, right? Maybe there's a few cases where women have initiated that, but that's usually up to the man. The, the man goes and asks his future father-in-law to have his daughter's hand in marriage. And this may seem an arbitrary side note, but I think it's important and it reveals the truth. Because we as the church are described as the bride of Christ, right? And Jesus is the husband. And when we think about the gospel in our story of salvation, who initiated the love between us and God? Yeah, it was God. It was Jesus, right? He's the lover and we're the beloved. We submit and receive and He gives and leads. And then the next one is headship or leadership. And I'm going to turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 to 23. Chapter 32. <laughs> okay, I'm just going to read it all. And there's some parts which we're going to just skim over and Paul can address those later when we get to <laughs> And some parts that I'm going to focus in on and zoom in on, right? So, I'll start off Ephesians 5 verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the saviour of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husband and everything. <coughs> Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And I think this <laughs> passage is always quite a controversial one, right? And as men, we read it and we write, for the husband is the head of the wife, and we're like, wow, we're called to headship and leadership, and our eyes light up, <laughs> and we're like, the idea of being given power, that's something cool. We like that. But it's, it's not the point at all. We're not called to, to be the boss or to have everything sorted out and just be served and have people running around <laughs> and polishing our shoes and bringing us snacks. <laughs> but we're called to Christ-like headship. Mm -hmm. This has nothing to do with being the boss. This headship is being given the responsibility to serve mm -hmm. the needs of those around us. So whether it's our children and our wife in the context of our marriage or the local church and everyone who lives around us in day-to-day -day life as a single person, we are called to serve them. We've been given the role of leadership to serve them. And uh, yeah, it's, it's something, I think this verse has been abused and we, we see it around the world where so many men lord this headship over and I think they just didn't read the next few verses <laughs> where it talks about Christ-like headship, right? He modeled it so perfectly for us. 
And then, yeah, headship can be a confusing one. We're like, what does it mean? And there's a verse in Genesis. I think Adam and Eve had just eaten the apple and they're like, flip, <laughs> this wasn't the right thing to do. <laughs> and they ran to the bushes and God comes walking through. And who does he call out to? Adam. Yeah, he calls for Adam. And I think headship is to be a representative, right? So Adam was the representative of Adam and Eve. A headship talks to your head. And how do you recognize people? Like by their face, by their head, right? So in the context of a, a family, headship means representing the family, being responsible for the family, taking account for what happens within the family. In marriage, men are the representatives. Think of how a woman's surname changes, right? But man is expected to look after his family. And it's also seen in the leadership of the church. Like we have leaders in our church, they have headship over us, and they are held to account, God holds them to account for what happens within the church. But more than just being headships and, and, and leaders as a call over our lives, we're also called to love like Christ did. And that's a massive ask and something we'll never live up to, but it's something really beautiful to aim to, to love as Christ did. And we know exactly how Christ loved. It was hugely sacrificial to the sake of losing his life. And we, as men, have that call over our lives. We are called to love women and children. And it's it's not something that excludes women again. You're called in other parts of the Bible to to love sacrificially. But I think, as we see in Ephesians here, it's, it's distinct. And there's a distinction made. And I think there's something beautiful when a man loves sacrificially. And we, yeah, it's in line with God's will. There's something in the way we are designed that when we live life loving sacrificially, that we're living as God intended us to live. And real manhood is an uncomfortable calling, whether single or married. The calling of leadership over man's life is not one to be served, but to serve sacrificially. And the world tells us that true manhood is to find immediate gratification and wealth, power, status, sexual pleasure, all these things. And the world tells us that leadership is a privilege. But it's, it's, it's hard to accept that and hold the biblical truth and belief that leadership, headship, means sacrifice, right? Mm-hmm. But true men deny themselves these pleasures, the carnal pleasures that the world provides, and find true joy in Jesus. True men provide, protect, and give freely to their neighbors, to the people around them. It looks like serving others as much, and at the end of the day, even more than you serve yourself. And, yeah, so I think those are the the points that I'd have written over the biblical man, if you wouldn't mind writing that, Rob. So there's the call to guard and protect. Yeah, I guess in anyway. God and protect. And then to be the lover. <laughs> and then headship or leadership. Yeah. <laughs> yes, in marriage. 
Thanks. Okay, and then to to love and live sacrificially. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, guys. So, obviously, there's a lot in the Bible of what it what it is to be human, but there's not so much on what it is to be a man or a woman. But I think, like. Looking through it, these are a few of the things that stick out when you go to the scriptures. But I think like that Ephesians passage is a beautiful thing, and there was a lot there, and I want to go try go through that, and I think to not, I'd miss out on something. But the Ephesians text talks about husbands loving their wives just as Christ loved the church, and highlights the idea of the church being the bride, right? Presented gloriously not having any spot or wrinkle, but holy and without blemish. And I think this is so key for all of us to realize in the story of the gospel, whether married or single, male or female, we all play the role of the wife or the woman in the gospel. We're not the hero of the story laying down our life to protect others. We are the people hoping someone else will lay their life down for us. Jesus is the one who brings order out of the chaos. He is the one who conquers the villain and we live in the peace and freedom He provides. He guards and protects us so beautifully. He is the one who sings over us and shows us the love He has for us. He initiates it and waits for our response. He chooses us. He is the lover and we are the beloved. He lays His life down for us in the ultimate sacrifice and we respond in obedience and submission. He is our representative. God sees Jesus when asked for an account of our lives. Not us. We are the beneficiaries of His sacrifice. God chooses to make us righteous out of His love for us, even when we are dead in our transgressions. So that's where I want to end off and hand over to Sik. Isn't it so cool <laughs> to, to see how um, little stuff there is on like one gender? Mm-hmm. It really kind of like frees you up for the extent and possibilities and stuff. Um, yeah. Can you take just the Yeah, the okay. okay. Thanks, cool. Um, I want to start off. Um, by saying that if you have any questions, we probably don't have the answers to them, but um, we are not <laughs> and we're not afraid of what scripture says. So we're willing to work through it <laughs> with you if you have questions or point you in the direction of people who can. But I don't think we ever have to be scared of scripture. Um, and the next thing uh, that I want to say is that um, when we see, I just think it's so beautiful um, 
just the way that Matt spoke. Mm-hmm. Um, and when when we hear God's intended purpose like that and who he's created us to be, that like commissioning of um, uh, uh, guarding and protecting, we see that in Genesis, in original intention, that sense of guarding. It's not something that we've decided or made up from the world. We see it play out, right? Yeah. Um, but when we see that, like, can you imagine um, a body of believers where this stuff is played out in perfection, which it never will be, right? But that is beautiful, and that looks super different from the world in every way. Um, one thing I want to do, because <laughs> I'm going to talk about what it means to be a biblical woman, uh, is to remind us again that we are talking about what it is to be human and then what it is to be either a man or a woman. And we're not talking about what it means to be male or female within the context of marriage, right? Because that's a whole different thing. That's in the role of husband and wife. What we are talking about or our focus is, is not necessarily marriage, And we would be foolish not to highlight in this context a critical way in which we read the Bible. And I'm not sure if you, if everybody knows this, but usually what we're supposed to do when we approach um, a text, we need to ask ourselves why, the why behind what it, why it is written and what its intended purpose is for. And that is um, why when people raise questions um, in Genesis um, about like where are the dinosaurs and how old is the earth, they're not going to find those answers. We're not going to find them there. Um, and it's critical to note that God, our creator, who breathed the word of God, right, um, didn't intend for us to answer those questions. It wasn't the purpose of Genesis. Now, the purpose of Genesis, if you don't know, it was written by Moses, and it's looking back in time, obviously, because Moses wasn't there chilling with Adam and Eve, right? Um, so he's writing it, and what had happened was he had led them out of slavery, and now they're now in exile. So you've got a bunch of God's people that have been enslaved for years and years and generations and generations that have been surrounded by the Egyptian people who have many idols and all sorts of things. And the reason that Genesis exists is to remind those people and now us who their God is and who they've been created to be. So that's what's happening within the context of Genesis. We know why it's written and therefore we can take from it what we need to take. It's the same as if you were asking, it's it's the same as like asking an NGO that um, exists to house um, victims of abuse, what are you guys doing about world hunger? You know, sort it out. It's not their purpose. It's not their intended role, right? So, with all this in mind, it is very interesting to watch how certain things in the Bible are extensively taught on. So we see this, this with things like money, it's spoken about a huge amount. There is very explicit instructions, and they look super different from the world. We see this in the one another instructions, loving one another. It's the greatest command, and I don't think you can find a book in the New Testament. I could be wrong, but I really would um, highly doubt that you would find one that doesn't speak to loving one another. Leading one another through serving, the act of how our leadership looks different than the world's leadership, right? It's an act of service because it's Christ-like. And then also, 
the role of a husband and a wife in reflecting Christ and the church through marriage, right? There is explicit instruction on how that's done. But we are talking about what it is to be a man as, a, as an individual and what it is to be a woman, right? And in this context, a woman. <clears throat> um, so we're taught to pay huge attention to these things because they look very different from the world and God's design here is very clearly laid out. So with that in mind, I would like to highlight how little the differences and different roles we play as individual men and women are spoken about in the Bible. And what you're going to find almost all of the time, <laughs> I did this, preachers on men and women, of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman, are almost always looking at scripture speaking about a husband and a wife, right? So what does it mean, um, the individual roles that we play? <clears throat> so... By way of logical thought, in this sense, if we're looking at explicitly spoken about, very important, different from the world, by way of logical thought, it seems that God is not highly concerned with the details of how we work out our masculinity and femininity. It's us who are concerned. We spend a ton of time trying to figure out what the differences are between men and women, and they exist, and they are godly, right? but they are mentioned very, very little. <clears throat> and I think the question, I was trying to think, why? Why, do, why are we so obsessed with this? And I think it's because the differences and what Scripture's being used for, I'd venture the answer of it's because it's been used, our gender has been um, used either like in hurt or shame. Um, we are shamed, we are squashed, we are pressured, um, there's been power and advantage used for personal gain, not the sacrificial gain that we were looking for, um, uh, it, what, what is biblical. Um, and that is why we need to be aware that the freedom God has given us in working out our humanness um, should not be judged or twisted to the generalizations of the world. So we can really, really hurt people by deciding what's general, and that's actually not biblically feminine or masculine, right? So the takeaway there is that God is not as concerned as we are about um, male and female differences. Um, then the next call <clears throat> is I want to ask us to renew our minds on this point, because if we are looking so much um, at the difference between things and we've got our own prejudices and we run our lives like that we need to um, <laughs> we need to sort that out um, there was a study done uh, um, with a bunch of Harvard students and <clears throat> the, uh, it was the same class in the same faculty um, and they gave them both a resume the exact same resume and they asked the students would you hire this person now, the only difference that they um, changed on the resume was the name. And the one name was a male name, and the other name was a female name. And on the male paper, this guy's accreditations, his, what they've seen in work performance and everything, um, that class said, and it's a mix of males and females, right? This isn't just males, um, <coughs> male classes. Um, and in that class, they said 100% hire him. He's going to do great things for the company. And the female one 
And they said, absolutely not, because she's a tyrant. Um, she's got a massive ego. She's going to harm the business because she's so um, focused on her own like ambition and stuff. And I feel like for me that just highlighted that's a way of the world, right? And we need to renew our minds in thinking, okay, what does Christ-like humanness look like? And then look at femininity in a biblical way and masculinity in a biblical way. But now to the differences. <laughs> Right, so anatomy. <laughs> it's pretty clear and it's pretty explicit. Um, I don't think we uh, are going to have any problem with that. And I think the Bible is pretty clear on that. And um, God did this intentionally. So I was, t- I was talking about it in the start. You know, I, did, I didn't do that on purpose, right? And I was like, it's the work of the Spirit. Because, <laughs> Because it's important, because it's different, and God didn't have to do that. He didn't have to make us different. He could make us asexual, and he would use one being that images him completely, um, that could just procreate by themselves, right? But he didn't do that. He made a female, and he created her with the anatomy to bear life inside her. And we see that the first gospel promise is made by God through the life of Eve. That's the first time we see it. And it's a promise made by the life that she will bring into the world. So Genesis 3 verse 15. This is God. This is in the curse section of Genesis. And it's God speaking to um, uh, Satan. Um, but he's uh, the curse on like Satan and Eve, right? Anyway, well, this is on Satan, but essentially God's speaking to him. So, I will put enmity between you, so he's speaking to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. So, who's the he in that? Jesus. Yeah, how beautiful is that? That's the first. <laughs> that's the first thing. Um, the first gospel promise we see that Jesus, a life brought through Eve, will crush the serpent's head, and he will only strike his heel. Eve's name actually means mother of all living, so we see her as a life giver. And the way that we see later in the story through the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit, God uses it to impregnate Mary. And she brings life into the world that has brought freedom and reconciliation, life, to all generations, right? So there's a distinct life-giver distinction that you see between men and women. We see this in a different way in Exodus. Um, So Pharaoh has the um, Hebrew people enslaved, right? And then what happens is he commands the midwives that if there is a son born to any Hebrew women, they must die. Okay. So essentially that's the command that these midwives are given. But these midwives fear God, right? So what they do is they say the Hebrew women give birth like super fast and we can't get there and then they're just alive and we can't do anything about it. <laughs> That's what they tell, okay? <laughs> um, so what did they do? They enabled life for all the sons born to the Hebrew slaves in Exodus. That's a saving of God's people. What happens when one gender is removed? There's no more life that can happen, right? 
we see Rahab and her bravery. So Rahab, um, she's a prostitute in uh, Joshua. And what Joshua is going to do is, um, with his tribe, all the people, they're going to um, uh, conquer Jericho, the city. And she's in Jericho. Um, she's one of the people that live there. And um, she houses two spies because of her fear of the Lord. Um, and what she does in, in that bravery um, she saves her entire family. She spares the life of her family. Mm. Life giver. I hope you see that being a life giver doesn't just mean having babies. Because think about how many barren or single women we see in scripture are honored for their faithfulness and service to the Lord, right? Mm-hmm. We see Phoebe, she's a, um, a deacon, um, and there's no evidence of her being married. We definitely think she's single. Mary, uh, Mary um, Magdalene, one of Jesus' disciples, Philip's four daughters in Acts, um, they prophesied all single. Rahab, same thing, um, not through having babies. Um, the midwives, same thing, not through having babies, but life givers. What I'm trying to do here is not cookie cut the word life giver, right? Um, <clears throat> I don't know all the outworkings of um, that in every godly woman. I don't think I could know. Um, and I'm so comfortable with that because I think the Bible seems pretty comfortable with it um, in the nuances that we see. But women are life givers. Mm-hmm. And we're created to be able to do that. The second distinction we see in Genesis, where we see um, God say to Adam, um, I need you to work and guard the garden. And then he says in Genesis 2 verse 18, this is the first distinction we see of male and female. Um, He makes her a helper. And if you like me, you cringe at that. (laughs) Um, yeah, it says, uh, I, I can't, I don't have it with me right now, Genesis 2 verse 18, but it's, I will make a, it's not good for man to be alone, I'll make a helper for him. Um, so this is the first distinction. So if you like me, you cringe at that. And again, I think that's a renewing of minds issue because the world has told us that helper is subordinate, right? Um, And if we look at scripture and not at the world, 21 occurrences of helper. Two describe women, which we see in Genesis. 16 describe God. So helper is a way that we uniquely bear the image of God. There's nothing subordinate about this because that would mean that there is something subordinate about God. Okay. Um... Men, I need you to hear this too, because if you are in the world's definition of helper, and there's things that kind of, that you act in certain ways, or maybe believe certain things, or have certain prejudices, you're also seeing it through the wrong eyes, and I want to be quite bold to say this, but it's sin, it's sin to see helper as subordinate, because it's of Jesus and God. Um, and it's by no means anything less than, um, than equal. The closest association, I'm, I was trying to think of a word that kind of, how do we see helper um, in the Bible really play out? And um, <laughs> I asked Matt, I was like, I don't know, like the superhero movies, but 
I know that Spider-Man wears a mask. So I thought, I don't get this, guys. So apparently people know who he is. Why does he wear the mask? <laughs> so it completely ruined my idea, but I was going to be like, you know, like Spider-Man, like underdog. Um, anyway, it didn't work. <laughs> but it's that kind of thing that we see. So Rahab, she's a prostitute. No one cares about her. But she makes conquering a city possible. She saves her family. Her entire family is through her bravery um, as a woman. We see Esther, she's sold into sexual slavery, all right? So she's not like at the top of anything specifically. She saves the entire Jewish nation. That's life-giving, right? The midwives, again, they preserve God's life for chosen people. It's not like anyone's like, watch out for the midwives. (laughs) They're going to help these Hebrew people, like, conquer everyone. You know, that's not (laughs) what's going on. So there's something of a, like, a fly under the radar and conquering with intense bravery that works against the, the devil. And again, the promise to the serpent is that Eve's offspring will crush him. We need to be renewed in the attitude of our minds towards helper. And then the third thing is, um, I'm going to run a little bit longer, guys, sorry, Um, is uh, beauty. I can't find anywhere in the Bible where a male is spoken as is beautiful. Um, I stand to be corrected. But that's really special, right? Um, we given instructions on our beauty. It's just assumed. We are beautiful. We are told to not adorn ourselves with all sorts of fancy things, um, but to show our beauty because it's from God's spirit within us. We are told to steward it, to be modest in it. See it in 1 Peter, we see it in 1 Timothy, and then Song of Solomon's very spicy book. (laughs) But he says, I think in 4 verse 7, he says, You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There's no flaw in you, right? And then women throughout scripture, we see them exhibit beauty that is exclusively given to us as females according to the beauty of God. And I think that might be hard for some of you to accept as women that you are beautiful, but according to God's word, you are beautiful because God has made you that way.